0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Good afternoon, friends. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and it is my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for giving us a few moments of your time. Great program ahead today. Several important primary elections were held yesterday. What did we learn from them? Well, today on the program we are going to give you some of the highlights. In addition, the House Judiciary Committee had a hearing to discuss abortion today, and it was just as exciting as you would imagine. Congressman Chip Roy was part of that hearing, and he'll join us later in the program to talk about it. Later in the program, the nation is still reacting to the evil done in Buffalo, New York last weekend. How should the church think about moments, think and respond about moments like these, Dr. Al Moller will join us for that conversation later today. But first, our headlines. Russia invaded Ukraine, claiming it was an effort to stop them from joining NATO. Well, it now appears Russia's invasion of Ukraine has prompted both Sweden and Finland to submit membership requests to join NATO.
2: The applications you have made today are an historic step. Allies will now consider the next steps on their path to NATO.
1: Meanwhile, the U.S. has set up the Conflict Observatory to record war crimes committed by Russia. Amidst all this international news, the ongoing crisis at the border, record-setting gas prices and now the baby formula shortage the Biden administration spent yesterday recognizing what's called an international day against homophobia, transphobia and biphobia. And joining me now to discuss all of it. it, it actually, we are going to have Congressman Gre- Greg Stubbe in just one moment as he gets settled. We have him now. Congressman Gre- Greg Stubbe serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the House Judiciary Committee. He represents Florida's 17th District Congressman. Good to see you again today.
3: Hey, uh, good to see you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, first, Russia and NATO. President Putin said the primary reason for his invasion was the possibility that Ukraine might join NATO. Now it seems that he's incentivized Finland and Sweden to do so. What's your reaction to all of this?
3: Yeah, he's definitely, I mean, if if you're Finland and Sweden, you're absolutely want to get into NATO right now. And you know why? Because the Western world and the NATO allies including President Biden, has said that they will stand behind NATO allies. So now Sweden and Finland know that if they, get NATO, uh, uh, if they get on NATO, they'll get the protection of all the NATO allies in the United States. So absolutely, there's going to be a bold rush for those countries, especially those in Eastern Europe that are along the Russian border as quickly as they can to join NATO so they have protection of the other NATO allies and the United States. That does make sense.
1: What are the reasons that Finland and Sweden may have been reluctant to join up until now?
3: Well, I'm sure part of it was the cost. There's uh, obviously a cost to being a part of NATO. And uh, Trump was actually pushing on them, other countries, to pay their fair share when he was the president because the United States pays an exorbitantly more than some of these other countries. But part of it is the cost uh, that these countries have to pay to become a part of the United Nations and NATO.
1: Well congressman given how this invasion has gone for Russia or perhaps it's better to say how has not gone do you think this decision by Sweden and Finland to join NATO will affect what Putin does in the future
3: Well, I certainly think now would be a time that he would think about attacking them before they become members of NATO because he knows they won't have that protection, that cloak of protection from NATO allies in the United States. But they're drawn so thin. I mean, one of the reports from the British Army was a third of the Russian Army uh, military has been destroyed Uh, If those numbers are true, he doesn't have the resources to expend himself in other avenues like in Finland and Sweden. So obviously it's very intelligent on those two countries to try to join NATO and become a part of that organization to get the support and protection from those other countries. Um, I think he's spread so thin and not having the advances that he thought he would have uh, that I'm sure he would like to attack those other fronts, but he's going to try to focus on the eastern side of Ukraine and certainly we hope
1: that this invasion what we hope is a failed invasion of ukraine uh, will deter not only putin but anybody else who might be considering aggression into their neighbors territory but in the with respect to the way the us is handling this early in the conflict it seemed the us was really concerned about provoking Putin, that they didn't want to do anything that would uh, cause him to react. Now it seems the U.S. is much more interested in simply defeating him. Do you think that's a fair characterization of the way the U.S. is responding?
3: Well, it's the Biden administration. All of the things they should have done to prevent him to invade, they didn't when they should have weeks and months before. They should have been sanctioning the Russian government and Vladimir Putin and all of his allies long before they invaded while they were doing the buildup which would have had a huge economic impact on his decision whether he actually invaded. They didn't do that. Uh, And now it's instead of putting, you know, our service members or our air capabilities, it's sending them billions upon billions of dollars, of which we don't get any oversight on in Congress. We haven't got any reports on the initial $14 billion of weapons that have been sent. Now there's another $40 billion that's been approved by Congress that's going. Where is that money going? Is it even getting to the Ukrainians? Um, and we haven't gotten any information as it relates to that. But this administration seems fit to just keep sending them money and weapons in the hope that they can defeat or at least push back Russians to the, to the Russian line.
1: With respect to the aid that the United States is giving, the $40 billion that you just referenced, that— number represents seven times Ukraine's total military budget, and it's more than three times what the rest of Europe has contributed in aid combined. Do you think we're doing what's necessary, or are we doing too much?
3: Well, I voted against that on a number of different bases. One, we we still don't know what happened to the original $14 billion that we appropriated, what happened to the weapons that we transferred over there. But on top of that, that $40 billion is the annual budget of the coast guard, customs and border patrol, ice and all of our um our assets on the border and we have an invasion on our southern border and we're going to spend the entire budget of all of those agencies combined and send to the ukrainians with a- absolutely no oversight with absolutely no guardrails on how that money is just supposed to be spent. And that's absolutely reckless in a time where we're a huge deficit, record spending, record inflation, record gas and diesel prices. And you're just adding to all of this by sending money to the Ukrainians that you're having to borrow from China, by the way, to send there because we've spent so much money that we don't have in our coffers.
1: Well, Congressman Stubbe, I'm getting messages that you have to leave now because votes on the floor are summoning you. And that, of course, uh, much to our chagrin is much is more important than what we are doing here. So I'm going to let you go. Congressman Stubbe, uh, we will finish the rest of this conversation, I hope soon, but we'll let you get back to your official duties. Thanks for being with us today.
3: Yeah, we'd love to. Thank you.
1: Now, I think we are going to go to Catherine Glenn, Catherine Beck Johnson. Do we have Catherine? We had calling an audible here. Okay. In our next conversation, uh, we're going to, Talk about the way that the abortion industry is responding to what the Supreme Court has done with the leaked Dobbs decision. And as you know, uh, not only churches, uh, not only pro-life facilities around the country, but in fact, the Supreme Court justices themselves have been targeted so far peacefully. We hope it remains that way. There are have been reports of threats, but no threats acted upon. But there are people certainly protesting at the home. Of Supreme Court justices, and in attempt, undeniably, to influence their ultimate decision in that case. Now, the judicial branch, of course, is supposed to be the third, the independent, the non-political branch. And there are statutes in federal law that prohibit activists from trying to do things that would uh, that would cause that would influence. Uh, Judges in the decisions that they are making. So, the question that legal scholars are wrestling with right now is what are these activists allowed to do outside the home of a Supreme Court justice? Is it legal or is it illegal coercion or an attempted influence? And to help us answer that question, we are going to bring in Kath- Catherine Beck Johnson. Catherine, thanks for jumping on in short notice.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Joseph. It's always great to be on with you.
1: Well, tell us what you're learning, this conversation within the legal community. What are abortion pro-abortion protesters allowed to do outside the home of a Supreme Court justice, and what are they not allowed to do?
4: Yeah, there's certainly First Amendment protections for people to speak freely. However, like any protection, like any liberty, it comes, it's not unlimited. So you can't say, oh, in the name of my religion, I can kill somebody. Similarly, in the free speech realm, you can't just go and intimidate, harass a Supreme Court justice outside of their home. And this is being done particularly to influence the justices in their opinion, in their jobs' opinion. And that is just especially wrong for them to be doing. And the First Amendment stops at their ability to intimidate and interfere with the justices' right to freely do their job.
1: Catherine, we do value the right to the free expression of ideas and, and, and free speech. And, and that is the baseline from which we're starting this conversation. But at what point does someone's constitutionally protected expression, perhaps holding a sign saying, you know, support Roe versus Wade, or, you know, my body, my choice, at what point does it cross the line between simply being an expression of an idea? that's constitutionally protected, to being interpreted by the law as an attempt to influence.
4: Well, you're right. Nobody is telling these pro-abortion activists that they can't be on public land with their signs, peacefully assembling and protesting. They have every right to do that. The First Amendment protects them from doing that. Now, the federal law states that once they cross that line, once they have the intent of interfering with obstructing or impeding the administration of justice with the intent of influencing any judge in the discharge of his duty, you cannot pick it near a judge's residence. That's very clearly established. So once they are going to the justices' homes, outside of their homes, interfering with their ability to freely live their life and do their job is when they have gone too far and i would say where are very clearly now has crossed the line of peacefully assembling and protesting to interfering and intimidating a justice by going to their personal residence especially when they have their families here some of them have young children this is very clearly crossed the line
1: yet we have not seen the justice department do anything about this do we think perhaps the Justice Department would be more inclined to get involved if in this with, say, a school board member?
4: I think that's right. I think it's very clear that President Biden and his administration has is very interested in pandering to the far left to the extreme woke and that base demands abortion on demand without apology by any means necessary and so the left very clearly doesn't have respect for norms even for the law at times and it's just their result by any means necessary and i think that they just view this Protest this interference with the justices' lives, this intimidation tactic as another way to get the result that they want.
1: Well, we do hope that the Justice Department will get involved. We know that Congress, of course, has gotten involved in this as well, trying to offer additional protection to Supreme Court justices. Unfortunately, in the times that we live in, it does seem necessary. And, of course, we pray for peace and that there will be no violence that needs to be stopped. But, Catherine, thank you so much for jumping on quickly and being with us today and updating us.
4: Thanks for having me,
1: Joseph. Coming up next, yesterday was a critical primary election day in five key states. President Trump had made endorsements. Some of them won. Some of the some of them didn't. What does this tell us about November? We'll talk about all of it when we come back right here on Washington Watch.
5: Family Research Council on an exciting two year journey through the Bible. FRC's Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan helps you to dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into the cultural issues of the day. God has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. By studying the Bible, we can see God's plan unfold throughout the past and be encouraged by how the truth of Scripture is still relevant in our current day and will be into the future. The Stand on the Word reading plan engagingly and thoughtfully takes you through the daily scripture to help you stay grounded in God's truth. You can start this reading plan with Family Research Council today. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your family and friends. Visit frc.org slash Bible to begin this journey through the Bible today.
6: Although most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, studies show that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. That is why Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview was created. The center serves to help Christians understand the importance of Scripture, why it must be authoritative, and how it can equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC Center for Biblical Worldview provide resources to help prepare believers to give a scriptural answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access these free resources at frc.org worldview. See the center's latest blogs, op-eds and publications by signing up for the newsletter at frc.org worldview
0: email. want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. My pleasure to be with you. Again, the website is TonyPerkins.com. Last night's primaries featured contentious elections in multiple states, including Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Kentucky, Idaho, and Oregon, setting up clear battle lines for the general elections coming up this November. And with Republicans poised to capture one, if not both, houses of Congress, New polling reveals that many of the issues we discuss here on Washington Watch, from women's sports to gender mutilation of minors and parental notification rights, are not just good policy, but also may make good politics as well. Joining me now to discuss it all is Matt Carpenter, director at FRC Action. He joins me in the studio. Matt,
2: good to see you today. Great to be here, Joseph. Thanks for having me.
1: So you're an observer of these elections. What did you learn last night?
2: Um, The picture is still kind of emerging. Uh, The big race last night was the Pennsylvania GOP Senate primary, and we still don't know who won that. But um, when you kind of zoom out, the picture doesn't get any clearer, really. Some of the results that we expected uh, happened, um, and there were others that were quite shocking. Uh, When you look at the Democrat side, you typically see um, front runners kind of running up the margins, a little bit less competitive primaries. On the GOP side, there was a ton of competition across the board.
1: Is there anything that you saw last night that you think gives an indication of what might happen in November?
2: A lot, actually. Um, when you look at some of the, the top line kind of primary turnout uh, numbers, you see, I, I mean, orders of magnitude is, is kind of maybe the scale we're talking about in terms of GOP turnout. Um, both uh, spe- speaking specifically about Pennsylvania, North Carolina, we're talking about states with significantly more registered Democrat voters than Republicans. With closed primaries, but in both instances, we saw double digit um, advantage for the GOP in both uh, in both the Senate primaries uh, and the government, the control primaries on both sides. Um, and I've got some figures here, actually, yeah. from 2020 in North Carolina. The last time there was a, a, a Senate primary there, the Democrat turnout in this last uh, last night went down 50 percent. OK, so that that's a significant drop. Um, conversely, when you look at how the GOP did last night, uh, they outperformed by 24 points, their Democrat counterparts. So, um, that pretends quite well if you're a, if you're a Republican and there's some signs there to worry if you're a Democrat.
1: Matt, is, is that a reflection of voter enthusiasm or is that a reflection of the fact that some of these Republican primaries were hotly contested? A lot of interest, more yeah. interest generally than you might see in a primary election. So should we expect that to even out? Or do you expect this gap in participation to carry over to November?
2: Um, I would expect the the gap in participation to carry over until November. I should note that uh, we are seeing in some places Democrat turnout going up. Um, for example, in 2018 um, in, in Pennsylvania, we see um, – the Democrats, about, at about 750,000 Democrats, turned out to vote in that primary. And this time it was about 1.1 million. Uh, to put that into perspective, though, again, this order of magnitude mm-hmm. idea, there are about 687,000 uh, Republicans voted in that 2018 primary on the Republican side in Pennsylvania. 1.3 million this time. So they almost doubled their numbers. So I would expect that to continue. And, and we can kind of look forward to see how this trend plays out next week with uh, with those primaries coming up as well.
1: Is there anything that really surprised you when you were watching results last night?
2: Um, you know, I think there are a lot of questions about the Trump endorsement and the power that entailed. Um, and you did see Doug Mastriano rack up a significant win there in the in the Pennsylvania GOP primary for governor. But you also saw candidates like Madison Cawthorn, right? He lost. He didn't even make a runoff. You also saw Janice McGeechin, who was a lieutenant governor of Idaho. Uh, she was supposed to have this, all this momentum going into challenge Governor Brad Little in Idaho, who had, I guess, taken some, uh, some controversial stances on, on COVID policy, she went down in flames. But then again, you had uh, you have Dr. Oz, who obviously uh, President Trump, former President Trump endorsed. Um, he could pull that out in, in Pennsylvania. We could be going to a recount there. I just said Mastriano won, and then Ted Budd in North Carolina blew, blew the doors off that primary. So again, it's kind of this murky picture. Uh, but yeah. I, think, I think a lot of focus is going to be on how this Trump endorsement continues to play out in the primary season.
1: Matt, did we get any indication of the issues that were particularly motivating? Was the Republican enthusiasm just a function of frustration with Biden and just really wanting to be involved Mm. and feel like you're doing something? Uh, I know that last year or when we were looking at the Virginia races, everybody saw that the parental rights issue, what was going on in schools, uh, seems to be really, really motivating. Any carryover of that? What issues are motivating people?
2: So they're, they're mostly pocketbook issues, I would say, at this point. Um, it's mostly around you know inflation, crime, things of that nature. But the cultural issues are undeniable. You mentioned the Virginia race. Obviously, the parental rights issue was a seminal part of Governor Youngkin's victory in my home state of Virginia. Um, and that's continuing. And I would actually expect that to continue to build Um, As Republicans look at some of this polling that's come out, and and hat tip to our friends at American Principles Project, who came out with some great polling recently, which showed across the board, general election voters, uh, by significant margins in some instances, support things like protecting girls uh, on the sporting field from competition against biological males, right? They support things like banning uh, minors from having access to puberty puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and and harmful gender reassignment surgeries. Um, They support the Florida Parental Rights Bill. Uh, and that's not just Republican voters, right? That's also going to be Democrat voters, significant majorities of them as well. This is not just a white uh, voter deal. This also significant majorities of Hispanic voters and African-American voters. I think it's actually less a white.
1: I, I think the, the white okay. people are much more likely to think boys yeah. can be girls than people who aren't white.
2: Yeah, you're probably right. Um, and, and conversely, on the opposite side, I've also seen data that suggests the culture war issues uh, tend to actually unite the right. So when you look at um, at kind of where the where conservatives line up on these cultural issues, you have 90 percent of Republicans, for example, opposing critical race theory. Um, but on the Democrat side, you just don't get that same level of, of support for the for the woke position. In fact, it tends to divide them. Um, there was some data that showed recently that, uh, that Democrats were actually evenly split on that issue of critical race theory, that even, even the, the positions that they've carved out, that their most prominent um, pundits, politicians, you know, you, you name it, figures have, have staked on some of these issues are actually wildly unpopular with the Democrat base. Um, so as, these, as this wokeism continues to play out, as the culture wars continue to be fleshed out in the, towards the election. Um, I would expect that to become something that the Republicans actually seize on as an opportunity to build a strong coalition.
1: And I think they should. And, and I think we can count on the fact that uh, th- this rebellion against the created order is not going to slow down because yeah. uh, they cannot exercise self-control. It's not in its nature. Yeah. And so we can expect to continue. We just have to provide Somebody has to provide a sane alternative, and, and the middle really is there, I think. Matt Carpenter, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Joseph. And coming up next, speaking of insane conversations, the House Judiciary Committee had a hearing on abortion today, just as exciting as you might think. We'll talk about it when we come back.
6: Most of us have at least one friend or family member who is pro-choice or have engaged with someone who doesn't share our pro-life views. As Christians, we are called to defend the weak and to speak truth and love. When we advocate for the unborn, we must do so in a way that is both honest and loving. At Family Research Council, we recognize the inherent dignity of every human life, from conception until natural death. The value of human life is not conditional upon its usefulness to others or an arbitrary evaluation of a person's quality of life. Rather, the value of human life is unconditional because God, the author of life, has created all humans in his image. FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by helping others speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Access our free resources at frc.org life so that you can address abortion, human trafficking, pornography,
7: and more. attention university students do you feel called to promote faith family and freedom in public policy and the culture are you hoping to grow in Christian leadership then join family research council for an unforgettable internship FRC's 12 to 15 week internship program is designed to educate university students who are passionate about public service and who believe that a biblical worldview is necessary for government to serve the people and for culture to thrive as an intern you work alongside FRC Experts who will invest in your personal and professional development as you prepare to make a kingdom impact in the world. This paid internship offers free housing in DC, allowing you to experience community with other faithful conservatives in the nation's capital. For more information and to apply, visit frc.org/internships. That's frc.org/internships.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Thrilled that you are with us. Right before the break, I had teased the fact that Congressman Chip Roy was going to be with us to talk about the Judiciary Committee discussion about abortion today. But House schedules have changed and Congressman Roy must tend to them. So we are going to have a slightly different conversation, but just as important conversation. Many of you are frustrated in the the height of the COVID lockdowns by the power that local and state, and in some cases, federal governments tries to seize in the context of a medical health emergency. Well, Recently, it seems that the World Health Organization is trying to take steps so that they have power here in the United States in the event that there is another health event, another uh, pandemic. And here to tell us about what's going on with WHO is Travis Weber, VP here at FRC. Travis, good to see you. Thank you. So tell us what's going on at WHO. Yeah, so the World
8: Health Organization is going to meet in Geneva, Switzerland, next week to begin debate on uh, proposed changes to the international health regulations. Now, this might sound a little obscure. You know, many people might not know <clears throat> exactly what the WHO does or the regulations, but but these are the focus of um, efforts, uh, focus of a lot of attention after the COVID pandemic, as we kind of. Close, move past a two-year point after a lot of the, the um, the 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 energy of the COVID pandemic began over two years ago. But, but um, you know, as we're at this point, the Biden administration is proposing changes to the international health regulations, to presumably deal with other pandemics better in the future. So it's understandable why they want to propose these changes, but the consequences are what we need to look at permanently locking in changes that would alter the balance of power right now between the WHO and member states in favor of the WHO. And that means in favor of unelected bureaucrats, in favor of many, many people behind the scenes making decisions, and the private money, the Bill Gates money that funds the WHO, influencing all that, without any accountability, without any political accountability from the people that the people are able to exercise, who the WHO is presumably serving. So this is understandably a problem. Uh, and at least the Biden administration needs to offer the American people an explanation of what it's doing, aside from the wisdom, the lack of wisdom of of, of giving more power to a world body like this. Because it's not the past pandemic that uh, uh, that we're going to be that be, be you know kind of laser like focused on in the future. It's going to be a future one or future consequences to so the
1: changes now we're looking at permanently locking in. So this is a major problem. And Travis, I think a lot of us feel like we'd like to see some. Changes in anticipation of another pandemic, but most of us feel like we 'd like it to go the other direction we 'd like there to be more accountability on emergency powers, so emergency powers can 't be wielded for as long as a period of time without the input of elected officials. This seems to be moving in the other direction, though do you have any sense of what changes would be made so what kind of power the the World Health Organization would have over us here in america
8: yeah so so these are the Biden administration's offered proposed changes to the international health regulations. They 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 deal with a number of number of articles of these regulations uh, involving the uh, required the response time by which a nation state is expected uh, to to respond. You know, so it's sort of the window that that a state is expected to uh, respond to the WHO in the case of a pandemic and provide information and respond with its plan for tackling the pandemic. And the, conse- the consequences, you know, that follow are part of this discussion as well. Now, you know, these, these, these regulations don't have, you know, hard consequences in terms of being enforceable like law from, from our analysis. But, but it does—this is going to create—you know, if you have a regulation like this and then nations are—you cl- know, there's a claim that they're not responding to, they're not rec- complying with it, imagine the international pressure that creates from other nations, from the public, from the media— we saw this during the COVID pandemic, so we should not be creating a situation like this where we're aggregating power in the hands of the WHO. So, response time, response plans, the nature of the information provided by a state to the WHO—these are some of the areas in which the Biden administration is proposing changes that would that would lock in uh, a more detailed prescription in favor of the WHO. So, um, a major problem here. Now, these these changes are also being probably going to be looked at as part of a pandemic treaty process, which is separate from what I'm just discussing, okay. separate from that, but, but similar policy prescriptions likely to be raised.
1: Travis? Major issue. Let, let me ask you a question on that point. How does the United States become committed to something like this? Does Congress have to act? Is this something the White House can do unilaterally?
8: Yeah, so on the regulations, it's it's run by the White House, you know, and the, and the executive branch has power for foreign affairs. Now, there's an obligation. We should be consulting with Congress, but there's no hard constitutional requirement in the same way that a treaty has to be given advice and consent by the Senate before we become a state party to the treaty as a matter of international law. So, uh, you know, different from the treaty— these regulations, though, the Biden administration is engaging with the World Health Organization directly. Congress needs to say something, at least raise a concern, raise a question. The American people deserve answers because we're looking at
1: aggregating power here. And and, and that alone is a problem. Travis, it is concerning. I think a lot of us are very uncomfortable with the idea that we would now have the World Health Organization determining the response, the the kind of lockdowns that could be required in the future. Um, It doesn't seem to be a path to a better reaction and a better experience should something like this happen again. But thank you for coming on and letting us know about it today. Thank you. We will continue to track that story uh, because taking power away from the people who have been elected to represent us is never a good idea, and that's what this looks like it's proposing to do. Coming up, Dr. Al Mohler is going to join us to talk to us about what happened in Buffalo, New York, over the weekend. What's the Christian response to evil? Stay with us for that conversation.
7: Religious liberty is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's own choosing and to live in accordance with those beliefs. It is an inherent human right. Therefore, Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty strives to advance religious liberty for all people of all faiths. Advocates for strong religious liberty protections are often labeled bigots. But for those familiar with the history of religious liberty in the United States, until recently it was embraced by a majority of Americans. In fact, religious liberty has historically had bipartisan support. Today, efforts to restrict this freedom have become increasingly common. Therefore, Christians need to articulate with greater clarity why we support religious liberty and why all people are served when religious liberty thrives. Access the Center for Religious Liberty's free resources to learn more at frc.org religious-liberty.
0: In today's culture, there are few examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need a model of leadership, strength, courage, and sacrificial love that they can look to. But where can they find it? Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do and will invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have the generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
5: At Family Research Council, we want to be able to keep you informed on our latest resources and events. Due to the growing threat of text censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've created a text subscription platform so that we can stay connected. So if we get canceled, you can continue to receive updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony. Last weekend, a lone gunman shot and murdered 10 people in Buffalo, New York, to the shock and horror of the nation. Now, Erie County Sheriff John Garcia described it as, quote, an act of pure evil. Now, evil is a word that may cause discomfort for some in our society. But as Christians, we know that evil and sin are real and we must identify them. Joining me now to discuss this and more is Dr. Albert Muller. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and author of The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church. He's also the host of The Briefing, one of my favorite podcasts, and if you're not listening, you should be. Dr. Muller, welcome back to Washington Watch.
9: Thank you. It's great to be with you, Joseph. Uh, important things to talk about.
1: They are indeed, and I want to start in New York Uh, We saw this act of of real evil, and, and people are not afraid to use that term in this case, and I think that's some good common ground. But there have been several responses. Some are saying this is the act of just one bad person. Others want to connect this to a larger cultural movement, forces. What's the right way to think about an event like this?
9: Well, I think, first of all, the sheriff was absolutely right to use the word evil. And, you know, we're the ones who know that evil is a theological word. And uh, and th- there is no way to escape uh, the, the question of how we explain evil, how how we explain how evil gets in a human heart, how we explain how a human heart gives itself to evil. And so, you know, the biblical worldview is the only satisfying answer to that. It tells us that evil is real in the sense that it is a genuine rebellion against God. And, and that points to objective truth. Uh, Evil doesn't just feel—that is to say that that, that this kind of act doesn't just feel evil. It doesn't just look evil. We actually believe that there's an objective reality in an objectively real universe uh, with objective truth in which this kind of attack is just horrifyingly, uh, unquestionably evil. Uh, The second thing is, you know, the biblical worldview reminds us that evil— is in the human heart, and and the doctrine of the fall reminds us of that. It's in every human heart. There there is no unsinful human heart. Uh, but we also understand, as the scripture says, there are those who give themselves to sin, and that's exactly what we see in the case of this shooter. Absolute evil, evil in the human heart, a heart that gives itself to that evil. And, and you know, the, the more we learn about the details of this case, the more horrifying the evil becomes. It's uh, it, it, it's it's truly something that staggers our imagination but it's real
1: now dr moeller we are individuals and and individuals need to be held responsible but we're also a community and in very real senses we do have influence over the environments that other people live in we certainly feel that way as parents and we feel responsible for the environment our children live in but how much collective responsibility should we feel for the environment our neighbors are living in, what they're seeing on the Internet, how they're experiencing life and reacting to it?
9: Well, Joseph, that's a great question. And, you know, I guess there are two things to say. Uh, The first is, in terms of concern, I think uh, uh, conservative Christians must have a great deal of concern for every context in which every single human being is living. And in particular, you look at a situation like we've addressed with the evil in, in Buffalo, uh, we're very concerned about that. What we can do about that is a separate question, and so the the, the concern is the easy part of the answer. The the action plan is the difficult part. And by the way, this is one of the most uh, difficult things. Uh, And the Christian worldview reminds us, and by the way, a conservative understanding of uh, politics consistent with Scripture reminds us that we do have in the political sphere a responsibility, but politics can't fix the heart. (laughs) Uh, Government can limit the opportunity of evil. And as Scripture says, Paul in chapter 13 of the book of Romans can punish the evildoer But government cannot expunge evil from the human heart. That's above
1: government's pay grade. And I think that's one reason why God didn't just create government. That is an institution that God created, but he also created the family. He created the church. Those are different institutions, and they serve a different purpose in recognition of the fact that there are limits to what each of those jurisdictions are capable of accomplishing. Now, President Biden was in Buffalo yesterday yesterday. I want to play clip five. Here's part of what he had to say. And then I want to see if you agree with this conclusion. Joe and I
8: bring you this message from deep in our nation's soul. In America, evil will not win, I promise you.
1: Hate will not prevail. And white supremacy will not have the last word. Dr. Mueller, can we have that confidence?
9: Uh, not in Joe Biden. And, and frankly, not in any politician of any party, and not in government. But uh, he, here's the ultimate truth that Christians understand. There will be a day of judgment in which God will punish all evildoers and will punish all sin. And yes, sin will not have the last word. And, uh, you know, th- th- that's not what the president meant, and I understand that. And uh, I-, I think a part of what President Biden was doing there, and I'm fully critical of President Biden, but a, a president Regardless of party, regardless of frankly being liberal or conservative, in one sense, speaking in the aftermath of a tragedy like that, will say things like what you just heard. Uh, but we have to come back and say, here, here's something interesting to watch. Not only is, do we as Christians have confidence that on that day of judgment, God will make all things right in terms of the exercise of His perfect justice, but but here's the thing: we need to be very very thankful for what the Scripture describes as common grace. Uh, common grace is seen in the fact that uh, there's not an American I know who does not understand that what took place in Buffalo was evil that must be resisted and uh, and evil that must be punished and evil from which we want to distance ourselves. And, and, and I think I don't know of an American who's not grieving with, with the people in Buffalo, including those especially most most affected directly. But uh, but, you know, the president was making a declaration there he can't deliver on. And, and, and yet we know God will ultimately deliver on that. And we also know that God's purpose is in history. You know, I, I, I don't want to just say too much here, but, you know, you think about the most horrifying moments in human history, and, and it's the one close to us would certainly be the Holocaust uh, of uh, undertaking by Nazi Germany against the Jewish people in, in World War II. And, uh, you know, I'm just very thankful that virtually all sane moral people you know, now more than a half century after that, condemn it in the most absolute terms, and Nazi Germany was defeated. And so we recognize that it, it, there, was, there was no end uh, in terms of victory for the untold millions who, who uh, were killed in the Holocaust. But even in human history, by God's grace, there is a reckoning that comes thereafter. It's an anticipation in its incompleteness of the reckoning that only God will bring.
1: I think another thing that the Christian worldview does for us in situations like this is it encourages not to look, encourages us not to look to our political leadership, because your point is Joe Biden can't fix it. And that's no knock on Joe Biden. That's just an understanding of the limitations of humanity. Joe Biden can't fix that. No other president is ever going to be able to fix this. And we don't have to put our hope in the fact that some elected official is going to make a speech and make it go away. Uh, this no, Joseph,
9: that's such a good excuse me.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
9: No, that, that's such a good point, and uh, it, it it just reminds us that politics can't solve the human heart problem, and uh, and and so you know a president, uh, you know a prime minister, uh, king or a queen could announce we're going to solve this problem, uh, but that's beyond the reach of human politics. Frankly, it's beyond the reach of psychiatrists, it's beyond the reach of you know mental health professionals, it's beyond the reach of law enforcement. Law enforcement has a very important role to play. But, you know, the one thing it can't do is prevent all evil
1: from happening that's exactly right. this was evil. it was a special kind of evil because it was undeniably racist evil and the the screed that the shooter wrote before he carried out this act made that very clear. Of course this isn't the first time the country has seen racism is certainly hasn't started a conversation about racism. I think it's a similar answer, but we see this on the courts of NBA arenas we see it on the back of helmets on jerseys and racism is racism ever going to be ended?
9: You know, in in the sense of it being sin deeply embedded in the human heart, uh, no, it it will not be ended. Uh, I I mean, even the Bible just speaks so early, a brother against brother, think of Cain and Abel. And and, and so there's violence, there's hatred uh, lurking in the human heart. But, you know, I I think we also have to recognize, I have to go back to common grace. And, And common grace reminds us, that there are advances in human history as well as declines. And, and so, um, you know, just looking at the history of the United States, it, it it is not the case that the United States is in 2022, where we were, say, in 1789, or in 1865, uh, or in 1965. When you think about, uh, you know, legislated uh law mandated segregation. And so we are not in the in the same place. We need to be thankful for that. But uh as much as the law and and uh and culture uh can by God's grace, common grace, you know, and by the preaching of the word of God, by special grace, uh, we, we can make advance against sin here and there, you know, it's it's just not something we can conquer. And Joseph, the other thing I have to think about is it seems, and and we just have to be humble enough to say we seem to advance here and to uh And to retreat there in in so many moral areas.
1: That's exactly right. One of the things that's in the conversations around an issue like this, and we've seen this in the immediate reaction, there's an attempt to leverage these things for political uh, opportunity. Um, Charges of racism are thrown about, in my judgment, very carelessly. Real racism exists, and we've clearly seen examples of that. Uh, And things are labeled racist that are not actually racist in the way that I would define racism as in intending malice. Um, But how would you encourage Christian? And I think a lot of Christians feel that way, that I'm constantly being accused of being racist for one thing or another, things I don't do or things I do do. But I actually mean really, I mean, have good intentions. How do you encourage people to respond to this idea that, oh, you're a racist simply because you disagree with me about a particular issue?
9: I think we have to press the argument, Joseph, and simply say, look, racism's real. Uh, I mean, we've read the Old Testament. We we, we knew it was real. We've read the New Testament. Uh, And uh, and so we're not denying that racism exists, but there is an opportunism that you see among people who who want to just identify policies, uh, arguments, uh, people That they don't like, and say that that that's just racism. I think we have to press the argument and say, "Well, uh, show me the racism there. Show 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 me the racism there. Show me that, as you said, the malice. Show me the preferential treatment. You know, let's actually uh, get to the issue there. And uh, you'll you'll notice a lot of a lot of people who make those charges aren't about to get into that argument. And so I I tell people I think one of the most important things Christians can can say in this is understand number one, racism is real, but racism as a sin is, is definable, just like murder, uh, you know, you, you go down the list, uh, right. sexual immorality, uh, calling everything something it's not is a problem. So I, I just think we need to challenge people. Let's, let's use the word very, very carefully. It's, uh, it's the same linguistic principle that if something means everything, it means nothing.
1: Dr. Morlow, I want to get to another subject with you in our remaining few minutes here. Another story that's in the headlines this week has to do with the baby, for- the baby formula shortage. Excuse me. Um, there are issues of government regulations, supply chains. You covered this on the briefing this week, and you actually introduced me to a new term, gerontocracy. Tell us what that yeah. is and, and how you think that's connected to what's going on with baby food.
9: I appreciate the fact that even an article in the New York Times made reference to this. And, and it has to do with the fact that uh, that we are in a very strange place as a society in, in Western nations, and I'll say in particular in the United States in 2022. Uh, people are living longer. They're, they're having healthy, extended lives longer than at any point in human history, uh, other than the patriarchs, but certainly in terms of, of, of lived history, um, and, and and the birth rate's falling, and that's the bigger issue. It's a falling birth rate. There just aren't enough babies, and, and there aren't enough families with children in the home to have the kind of political clout that children need and that families need. And so a gerontocracy is a society that, first of all, just aging, and the power goes to the aged. I don't want to take anything away from the aged. I don't want to take anything <laughs> away from them in, in, in terms of everything they've earned and all the respect they're due. But I will tell you that if you go to a society that has an imbalance between the very old and the very young, it will be at the expense of the very young. And and, and that's a huge problem. They don't get to vote. Uh, They they, they don't show up at rallies. Uh, and, uh, And so at least a part of the problem, even with the baby formula shortage, is that there's been a lack of attention to some of the very real needs, say, of infants. It's hard to imagine one more basic than being fed. Uh, so, the, you know, uh, Joseph, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. The, the gerontocracy is, a, is a, not a sign that there are too many older people. I say that as someone with gray hair. It is a, it is a sign of too few babies, children, and families devoted to raising them. And you can see that uh, you, all you have to do is look at a country like Japan or, or even some European countries that leads to a very imbalanced political system.
1: And as soon as I heard the term, I started thinking about where this dynamic might be in play, right? Because we're all about power dynamics these days. That's what the the critical theory of various kinds is all about, the oppressors and the oppressed. And I started thinking about where this gerontocracy might exist. And one of the first things I thought of was the budget and how much money we spend. And we have a $31 trillion hole that we put our kids into. Um, And I think about the education system, which is really designed to educate, it's to, it's to hire and employ teachers more than it is to educate right. kids. Surrogacy right. issue really is everywhere, isn't it?
9: It is. And, and, and you, we, we understand that this is the inversion of a biblical worldview that tells us the first and most important assignment given to human beings is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We should have a national policy that says we're going to make sure that we take care of supporting marriage and family and children before we do anything else. Right. And uh, we really turned that on its head. Uh, Joseph, I'll tell you real quickly where I saw this one time. And, and we got and, about 30 uh,
1: seconds. <laughs> okay.
9: So, yeah. uh, you know, what kind of park are you going to build? Are you going to build a park, you know, for uh, for the aged? I'm glad for, you know, I'm glad for older people to have all kinds of recreation. But at the expense of children, well, that's just sort of turning the world upside down. And that's just a tiny picture of what's at stake. That's
1: exactly right. Dr. Almuller, you are a treasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Great to be with you, Joseph. God bless you. And thank you for spending some time with us as well. We will see you tomorrow on Washington Watch. We look forward to it. Until then, fear God and nothing else.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action.